Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, live in Washington, D.C. I'm Ben Rothenberg with a guest host, a recent Herculean sports achievement doer person, Ricky Diamond, fresh off completing the Marine Corps Marathon yesterday. Ricky, how you how you holding up? How was your first uh, marathon experience? And did you, how much, if at all, were you thinking about Caroline Wozniacki out there? Uh, well, the marathon experience was great. Uh, the atmosphere in D.C. was awesome. Uh, you know, tons of fans running through the uh, heart of our nation's capital. So yeah. the atmosphere was great. Um, the course isn't too difficult. There's hills. There's two hills in the first two miles, and then a couple of inclines. But overall, it's a flat course. So it's an especially good marathon to do for your first one, which was the case for me yesterday. So uh, it went well. I was actually trying to beat Wozniacki's time <laughs> of three three twenty six, and I was on pace to do it for most of the way. But uh, the last couple miles were pretty tough, especially the last half mile when I started cramping. So yeah. um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't able to beat the 326 posted by Wozniacki last year in New York. That was, which, an, that was an which, impressive Yeah, debut. I must say that's very impressive. So I think I came in at uh, 342, which I'll take for my first time. And uh, hopefully I'll do it again next year. But uh, yeah, good to be here in D.C. and back on NCR. So we will mostly talk about ATP in this show. It's your forte. And there's a lot of in your going to head over to London for the World Tour final soon. But I want to quickly ask you, I was actually I was out watching you in Rocky Park for the marathon and streaming on Tennis TV, which will certainly not be the case for WTA as a possibility, <laughs> yeah. but uh, Will uh, was watching the final there and Sibylkova won. And I know you didn't watch that match because you were running, but I want to ask you, just somebody who follows tennis at all levels and college and everything, high school even, just this round-robin format we have in the tour finals is pretty unique. Um, I guess they have it in Zhuhai too, but what do you make? What do you make of it as a format? I guess especially in the wake of the last two WTA winners in Singapore, uh, Sibylkova and Radvanska last year, both going one and two in group, and then going on to win the tournament. Last year's was even more sort of extreme because you had two players who went one and two making the final, right. um, which is pretty mathematically hard to do. Um, just as a tennis fan, do you think it's a a, a valid format? Because it was it came in for a fair amount of predictable criticism after uh, after this result for Sibylkova. Well, I think for a year-end championship, like for Singapore, for the women, and London, for the men, there isn't really any other option because you can't have just an eight-team, eight-man elimination tournament because, you know, for a year-end championship, you need you need more matches than that to I would determine think so. like a although, true champion. Although I, I didn't realize it did it very quietly. The WTA switched right. back to single elimination eight teams for doubles this yeah, year yeah, that which was i was surprised by and i guess and i know atp world tour finals has the doubles it's a very big part of the ticket and it's right. like one singles one doubles every session and i can as someone who doesn't often focus on doubles it can feel like it takes up a lot of time in london but like there's a lot of doubles going on all the time you kind of have to wait for it to finish to get to the match that you're most likely writing about right um but yeah i think i don't i don't know what the f- format is there that works best i'm not sure i mean i think yeah, again, for the year-end championship, I feel like you kind of need to have round-robin. I certainly wouldn't be in favor of it for you know normal WT or ATP events. Cause, which, which ATP tried for a while. Right, ATP tried that in 2008 or so in uh, in uh, in the pre-Australian Open swing. Yeah, that didn't, I think that even didn't last like, I think long. there was one time when there was like this big math confusion or something. Right, James yeah. Blake was involved. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember details. I'm sure people out there, some people remember details, but yeah, it was a mess. Yeah. So for normal WTA ATP tournaments on the calendar, I'm definitely not in favor of it. Because like you said... I mean, it seems weird even losing once and going on to win a tournament is, 
you know, a little bit weird, and much less losing twice yeah. like Civil COVID did. So, I mean, for normal tournaments, I would definitely be in favor of you know keeping it the way it is, which I'm, I'm sure they'll stick yeah. with it. But I, but I, I do like the round robin. And I think it's fine. And I don't have the I don't have the biggest problem with somebody losing once and winning the tournament. Yeah. Uh, you know, Djokovic did that last year in London. He lost right. to Federer yeah. in round robin and then beat him in the final. And even in that case, he knew he lost, and he knew it wasn't like a total legit loss because he knew he could lose given the format. Yeah. No, for sure. And you know everyone agrees to the rules going in. It's not like, you know, somebody like snuck in as a late, you know, semifinal lucky loser or something weird like that. Right. They they all agree to those rules, and it's pretty pretty standard. And, and yeah, and I think, you know, if you want to have something that offers redemption to players after losing, I mean, in life you don't always, you know, not get to make mistakes and succeed in the end, so... Anyway, as a metaphor, I think it, I think it's fine. Yeah. Um, I think overall, and Sibukova played really well and is now top five and deservedly so in a WTA year that's been pretty all over the place. But I want to get to ATP year. Thought your just your thoughts on this year specifically and how it's shaped up, in especially in the context of a, a tweet you sent out earlier this week, where you proposed you offered an alternate lineup for the World Tour Finals, which you said would be much more appealing. So if you can go through right. what that looks like now, just for context, because you were basically saying. ATP season is essentially underwhelming, or this at least London's underwhelming, because you you came up with what you thought was a list of a completely different set of eight players, right? Which would be a better ticket. Yeah, so, so, so you can go through go through what you yeah. There, the base of my tweet of was that you could actually find a list more intriguing with players who did who are not qualified for the World Tour Finals or not going or are not going to the World Tour Finals, correct? Then a more intriguing list than the top eight that we're actually going to have. Obviously, the top. At the time, I tweeted this last week before Chilich was in. So at the time, it was Djokovic, Murray, Warenka, Raonic, Nishikori, Monfils, Team, and Burdich. But even if you swap, even if you swap, right, even if you swap Chilich and for Burdich, right, it still wouldn't matter because you could find a list of eight players who aren't going to be at the World Tour Finals: of Federer, Nadal, Del Potro, uh, Gofan, who's still in contention but right now out. Uh, well, Burdich would be currently in the out group, and Chilich would be in the in group, and then Kyrgios, Sanga, and Zverev. But you were saying you could swap in like Dimitrov for Chilich or, or for Burdich. Yeah, like Burdich would be in the out group right now, and I'd probably put you know if you're making an eight person tournament with who aren't in the World Tour Finals, I would put Dimitrov in there for just Burdich based from on a, based on sizzle factor from a current based, format yeah. from a current form standpoint and sizzle factor. I mean, more more yeah. fans care, care about Dimitrov. He's playing way better than Burdich is right now. Um, so, yeah, so again, the not in the World Tour Finals group right now for me would be Federer, Nadal, Del Potro, Gauffin, Dimitrov, Kyrgios, Sanga, Zverev. That's a pretty darn good eight list for eight guys who aren't even going to be there. That's a lot. And, that's, and it, does, does that say to you that um, there's two ways to take it? One, that there's like great ATP depth. Although I don't know if you can call it depth because Federer and Nadal are like kind of MIA. Right, yeah. um, and Kyrgios is MIA for, you know, on suspension now. Or does it say that the top of the the men's game is like this kind of like a uh, a literal WTF year for the WTFs in London? Like, what is this group and people? This is not what people want to see. Yeah, well, I think it's both maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's both. I mean, obviously the obviously Nadal and Federer are the two. You know, even yeah. though they're not ranked the highest, they're still the two biggest names in the sport by far. So, really, any list, almost any list of eight people that has Nadal and Federer on it is going to be more intriguing than the list that doesn't have Federer and Nadal on it. Because, you know, even Murray and, you know, Djokovic was awesome the first half of the year. Murray was awesome the second half of the year, but they still don't, you know, they still don't 
piqued the interest of tennis fans quite like Nadal and Federer. Do. I, I heard, I heard, I heard that as of now, only one session is sold out for London. Really, and it's the finals. Wow. Um. So, and obviously that's still tricky because right now, like, if you know, there are diehard British fans who want to see Murray, they, I don't, we don't know yet what days he's going to play, right, which is kind of yeah. ridiculous on its own. Life. I mean, tennis yeah. should make that clear, especially when you know. Djokovic and Murray will be in separate groups at this point. You should they should announce what days they're playing yeah, already. I I would, that would be smart. I think one. I mean, one thing that could really uh, be a boost to London this year that we haven't had in the past is Djokovic has always been number one with a bullet going into London. As you know, that's never been in play. Whereas this year, if Murray doesn't overtake this week in Paris, which he could, then he has a real good chance of overtaking Djokovic in and, London. And, for even, number and one, even if he so. does, would he have clinched? Yeah, he would. Would he have clinched year end? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, he might. Yeah, he could overtake Djokovic in Paris and not necessarily. I think. Clinch I it. think Murray also yeah. has, I believe, Davis Cup points that are going to expire. Yes. Yeah. Later on. Yep, he does. Davis Cup final yeah. points. Yeah. So it's so the year end race could be something. And let's get to that race now because that's yeah. something we haven't had in a while. And Bercy just started in Paris. Mur- Murray's in with a shot to win it this week. Uh, what do you What do you make of of Murray? For me, Murray getting it doesn't. It seems fitting that he's like has a shot number one I mean, he's been yeah. top four for so damn long yeah and he was number two i think way back in like oh nine or something yeah for the first time that him being in the mix for number one feels fair and right and appropriate yeah but it came that it came in 2016 it's really yeah. bizarre to me because yeah Djokovic's first half of the year was impeccable right like really his only like regulation loss for the first four and a half months of the year was that well, he he withdrew from Dubai with an eye issue against Lopez. And that was his yeah. only real loss for a while. Right. Yeah. And then he lost um, to Vesely and Monte Carlo, and very fatiguedly lost in, to Murray in the Rome final. But he didn't take many L's at all. And was just yeah, a really re- dominant guy. Won all four slams. And so for his number one to be in jeopardy this year is baffling. To yeah, me. I remember tweeting early in the year, like you know, in February, March, that I wouldn't have been like that entirely shocked if Djokovic went through the whole year. With without a non-retirement loss, I mean, obviously, I wasn't like expecting it, but like it was within the realm of yeah, possibility. No, absolutely, that's how good he was playing, um, and nobody was getting close. And I don't. The thing is, I mean, Murray had a really good middle of the season, like Clay, and since the beginning of Clay, he's played really well. But I don't know that this is. It doesn't. He's taking care of business. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. he went and won Beijing, Shanghai and vienna to yeah. rack up two thousand points right there so that's very solid yeah um he's won but he hasn't he's won, he's won six of his last eight tournaments dating back to queen's club right but to me this is still even with that even still it's more about Djokovic slipping oh, yeah. oh, for sure yeah yeah for and sure. that's just i just I, I don't know i guess what does that say about the state of the tour right now there's such just odd number one I mean, we see this in wta kind of all the time yeah. like where there's a number one who's there and is not dominant you know can't be banked on to win tournaments every tournament she enters and you know loses consistently turnover unless you know serena we had for three solid plus years who was pretty reliable yeah. on that front but other than that it had been sort of a, a rare thing and atp hasn't been that way i mean we've had this air of rock solid number ones since right. federer took over and even roddick when roddick first got it he was very short time number one but he was mm-hmm. a solid enough number one and then yeah. federer took it from him and then Nadal was always playing well, and we just haven't had a number one slumping. Right. Like yeah. this. this is weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the main the main complaint that, you know, the common tennis fan will have with this season is that we just didn't get enough of Federer and Nadal. Yeah. Um, you know, Nadal, we've, we've only seen sparingly since the second round of the French Open. 
and Federer we haven't seen since the Wimbledon semifinal. So, you know, that's been that's kind of bogged the tour down this year. And, uh, you know, in terms of getting, you know, when I say bogged down, that's basically kind of what happened to Djokovic. I think, you know, he completed the career grand slam and then, you know, obviously we had the, you know, personal issues, whatever that was, but, you know, I think he just kind of, you know, had to go back to the drawing board, you know, reset his goals after he, after just, he it's accomplished just, it's, yeah. the French open. It's just yeah. so weird because there was no sense at all at the French open. This was like, you know, temporary, or this was going to end. If, right. you had, if you had told me that the French Open would be, I mean, he won Canada, which was kind of a pretty weak field right before the Olympics. He yeah. went and won that tournament. Yeah, but, no, no but that, that, that that no one remembers that yeah. it barely counts. It's an yeah. asteriskable tournament. Yeah. Um, if you told me that French Open would be his last like significant title of the year, that'd be so bizarre to me. Right. And I would have yeah. thought he got injured and was out, but he's right. been playing more or less full schedule. I mean, he, oh well, he didn't play Cincinnati, um, but still, yeah, he's he's had a had a weird one and. It's just interesting seeing ATP in a relative state of, of chaos. And all credit to Murray for taking full advantage of it. Right. I mean, he didn't at the U.S. Open. That Nishikori loss still really surprises me that he yeah. lost to Nishikori um, in that match. So he could have gotten number one already if yeah. he'd gone deeper at the U.S. Open. He could have won the U.S. Open for sure. But who do you think will win this week? I think the scenario is, right, that Murray gets it if he makes the something like okay so can, murray yeah. murray becomes number 1 if he wins without Djokovic he, making the final if he wins the title and beats someone other than Djokovic in the final yeah. and if murray finishes runner up he needs Djokovic to lose prior to the semis right. so he's got two outlets um, you think he will you think that'll I, happen I, I think he's going to do it this you know oh this week i i think murray's going to win the tournament you know i mean kind of like how he got to number 1 like he's playing well but also there's i don't see anyone really who's going to stop yeah. him um, so yeah, I've got Murray. I actually have, have it working out either way. I think Murray's going to win the tournament and I think Djokovic is going to lose prior to the semifinal. So even if Murray just makes the final, I think, I think he'll do it because I don't know. I just, I don't feel good about Djokovic's chances based on his recent, recent he's been, performances he's been all over the place. We haven't seen, I haven't seen that much of him since, well, he first of all didn't play that much at the U S open, even though he made the final. And then I saw his loss in Shanghai to Batista Gut and he looked so like a yeah. shell of himself. It was it'll, really it'll be interesting to see though, if, now that he knows, like he's at a tournament where he could finally lose an arm finally get some light he, of fire under his yeah, ass, yeah, yeah, for the first time in a long time, yeah. and it hadn't been an issue for him. Like you know, he was number one, like you said, with a bullet for most of the last two, three years yeah. since he took it over from the doll, um, and now this is the first time he's really feeling pressure. So we'll see if he responds well to that, or if he shuts down and plays it down. He's been really active about downplaying the importance of number one to him, and. Yeah. Not scheduling for it and all that stuff. So we'll see where, where his. He didn't look did. too good today in doubles, but I don't, he know, never that, I don't know if that's anything oh, brief, to go brief, by. Brief sidebar, just more like sort of, you know, barroom ATP conversations. I was talking on Twitter today about ranking the top big four in terms of doubles prowess. Djokovic is obviously fourth. Yeah, big I mean, time he's, fourth. He's a shockingly ineffective doubles player <laughs> yeah. for someone who's so good at singles. Yeah. His results have never been there in doubles. Yeah. Um, we both agree. That Nadal's the best. Yeah, by why, far. Why do you yeah. think Nadal's the best doubles player? I mean, he's he's got great hands at net. Really like, underrated. Re- really hands. underrated he hands. He doesn't use it nearly as much as maybe he could in singles. Yeah, but he's in doubles. He's amazing. At yeah, net. great, yeah. great touch, great overhead. Um, and you, like we're seeing Jack Sock, you know, winning all these doubles tournaments, and he does it by sitting at the baseline. I mean, granted, Sock also has good hands at the net, but he does it a lot by sitting at the baseline, pounding huge topspin forehands. And so Nadal does all of it. You know, he does. He can sit at the baseline and destroy, volley, uh, destroy ground strokes at guys who just can't handle it at net. And then he can also, 
get up at net and no. put away with any and, kind and of with body, his so. topspin is even tougher at net than it is in a baseline right. rally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Nadal's super really good doubles player. And between Federer and Murray, I picked. I picked. I think I picked Murray. I just feel like I don't know if the, as someone said the stats like Federer has a better record in doubles, and he won Beijing. He won gold. Yeah. Murray. Murray. Uh, I won a lot of big Davis Cup matches last year. Yeah, Federer obviously won Davis Cup. It wasn't as many tough ones. I feel like that Federer that Federer had to win was and he had better partner. Well, and Stan's probably a better partner than Jamie Murray. Um, and Murray I, Murray's played a lot with Jamie when Jamie wasn't as good, which I think probably brings down his win loss record. Um, and played with just some other odd British partners, Colin Fleming when Fleming wasn't always at his best and things like that. So I feel like. Well, also Federer did play with Eves Allegro and stuff like that too. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I think it's it's a hard thing to it's hard thing to quantify easily. Yeah, Murray I, won Murray won a mixed silver with Laura Robson, who was hadn't been playing that well before that run. So yeah, uh, yeah I think it's. I, think I, would, it's I mean, I would give a slight nod to Federer for number two behind Nadal and Murray at three, but not even going from a result standpoint. Just you know, I think Federer's serve at least at its best. Just the, the placement yeah. is so good that it's so effective. A really good doubles. double serve, yeah. And just his, you know, his movement and his volleys around the net are just so good. But again, it's Nadal clear cut one, Federer and Murray interchangeable at two three, and Djokovic, you know, <laughs> not, it's not weird. A, not Djokovic, even a of Djokovic's, Djokovic's doubles lack of anything is weird, and the, the yeah. smash, like you mentioned, it's a plus for Nadal. Djokovic smashes remains a, a wonder oh, in, it's, in itself. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about. We'll get to the doubles actually again in a second, but the race to, for the final spots in London. Uh, which is also, I think it's really, really cool the way that the ATP has it set up, especially compared to WTA, which finishes on this weird sort of whimper with the people running to play small events in Europe at the end, uh, yeah. indoor events, and just sort of vulturing points, yeah. which made for a very dramatic finish with Kanta losing at the finish line to Kuznetsova, who came flying in out of nowhere by winning uh, Moscow. Very un- un- improbable title there, and Sibulkova also, I think, passed Kanta, or maybe at least clinched ahead of Kanta by winning Linz really late. Um, and then they both Sibylkov and Kuznetsov backed it up really well at Singapore itself, so that was yeah. good to see. But uh, ATP, it's a better situation, I think for sure. Finishing at a Masters event yeah, where everybody fine. shows up, and Bercy's gotten a lot stronger in the last few years. Bercy used to be this weird weak one where the guys would pull out frequently if they already clinched, and you don't see that much that as much anymore in the last three or four years anyway. Right. Well, there used to be no week off in between. Right, that Paris was huge. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. guys would pull out. Right, um, and that, that's like the last time we had that thing was when there was like a Ferrer Janovitz final. And then <laughs> yeah. since, since then, everybody's pretty much posted yeah. up and played. Except for Malfis. and played hard. I mean, Djokovic has won that three years in a row, yeah. so he's he's played well. Right, yeah. Malfis pulled out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what what do you make of uh, the race, and who would who do you think will get in of the remaining contenders? So the qualified field right now, as it is, is Djokovic, Murray, Vavrinka. Ronich, Nishikori, and Malfis. Malfis making his debut. People are excited for that. Yep. Uh, who would you, of the remaining contenders, who would you like to see get the last two spots? And who do you think will get the last two spots? Uh, well, obviously, team is still in position at number seven. I think I think he'll be able to stay on. And How team hasn't and, clinched yet? His team right. schedule is, <laughs> his team is like actually like on a not dissimilar to Djokovic's trajectory. Like everything was going so well through the French Open. Yeah. And then just thud. He was the match leader in wins. Like, the entire first half of the year by a lot. I mean, that, we knew he was overscheduling at the time, right? Yeah. But I didn't think it would hit him quite this hard. Oh, yeah, I don't think anyone did. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And I talked to him about it, and even after the French, I should relay back because after the French, he went on and won Stuttgart right away. Yeah, in, on grass at two fifty the week after Paris, which was insane scheduling. Yeah, and then he went to Halle again, where I talked. I did an interview with him in Halle, 
and the story of the New York Times, the whole point of which is Dominic Team feels no need to rest ever. Yeah. And he made the semis in Holland, played pretty decently, and lost to um, Florian. Uh, Florian Meyer, who yeah. was playing, who had a great week and, yeah. you know, won the title. As a grass, yeah, as a glass yeah. fluke win, it was really satisfying to yeah. see Funky Flow do that. Um, yeah, the, team's, the team is not clinched yet by Bercy. It's bizarre. Yeah. I mean, he right. should get in by all rights. Mathematically, a lot of things have to go weirdly wrong for him yeah. to not get in. But then, yeah, who else would he... I think I mean, we both agree that he sh- we want him there. Right. I think I think we want team in, yeah. Right, we want team in, even though even though he's not playing well. You know, maybe 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 a debut appearance in London will light a fire him for that week. And I think we just want... You know, we're not going to have Nadal and Federer in London, so I feel like, you know, fans want new people there. Like, they don't necessarily want to see Burdich and Chilich and, you know, I the agree. same people that they're Bur- always Bur- going to see. Burdich especially. Burdich especially, is, yeah. Sir. Burdich has just been in the... World Tour Finals for so long, yeah. and this is as a I'm going to say this with an exasperated tone, but it's a testament to how good he's been right. for so how, long how without ever really being relevant in that field. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's just never like in the mix and shaking things up. It's just a very yeah. reliable. And for Ferrer too, Ferrer had been in that same yeah. category. All Ferrer had like maybe one final. I think it, maybe maybe it was back in Shanghai. Uh, Ferrer had been a little. It's better. Ferrer's great indoors. People yeah. underrate Ferrer as an yeah. indoors player. Um, but yeah, uh, I would like to see some fresh blood and yeah, see, yeah. I think. And see Goffin in there or uh, yeah. Chilich, yeah. Mafis will definitely, you know, add some spice to it. I hope especially so. in the round-round format. Although Mafis has been relatively, except for that one crazy USL match, Mafis yeah. has been relatively unspicy this year. Well, he's been he's been focused. He's yeah. been he's been non, uh, you know, he's been, he's been no nonsense. And I will say about this about Mafis also, Mafis has gotten lucky. Mafis has not, for considering his ranking, Mafis has very few big wins to his name this year. Yeah. He's just, like, really taken care of business and had draws break his way. Yeah. And just like been re- but been really diligent about always taking advantage of him. I mean, like yeah. U.S. Open, he made semis. He didn't beat anybody. Yeah, he beat Pui. Uh, I think Miami, he made quarters and Indian Wells and uh, Australia, and all of them with like no top ten wins. Yeah, so he's just been and, very work. And the biggest, the biggest, the biggest, the biggest title of his career came in Washington. That's right. And he yeah. beat he beat Zverev in the semis, which is a good win, but again, not a top fifteen player. And in yeah. the final, he beat Karlovich, who yeah. is not a top 20 they player. He barely won think. that match, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Karlovich had been broken the entire tournament and then gets broken certain for the title at 5-4 in the second. Yeah, there was, there was a Karlovich, uh, Karlovich uh, meltdown of similar sort in Vienna this week. I don't know if you saw it in the semis. Oh, playing yeah. Songa and like yeah. was up, set in a break, and completely choked and served three double falls in one game. It was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a disaster. Yeah. Okay, so that's that. Uh, very briefly, I know that you have been paying closer attention than most to the ATP doubles race. We don't do nearly any doubles talk on this in the show. Yeah. Tell, walk me through the race to uh to London and just this year in doubles because it's been a weird few years in the ATP and doubles. Yeah. There've been a, a long streak that was finally broken at Wimbledon of first time champions winning all the doubles titles. Uh it've been I think six teams in a row where it was two guys who never won a slam before winning the slams. Yeah. Which is a crazy run. Imagine you had six first time winners in singles in a row. Yeah. That'd be insane. It, yeah, that'd be crazy. Uh, ATP, uh, WTA had it once in 2011 in singles where they had uh, Lina, Kvitova, and Stoser all won first-timers. But the two of them, Lina and Stoser, were, were very established at that point already. Yeah. And But anyway, yeah, it was a crazy run. Now what's doubles looking like? Bryans yeah. have faded, obviously. Yeah, I mean, a big the Bryans... for this, but Lopez's have been doing well and other things. The, yeah. I mean, the Bryans dominated up until 2013 or so. And then, you know, for a while this year, it looked like Erbera and Mahu were going to be the new Bryan brothers. Yeah. I mean, they won Indian Wells and Miami back to back. 
Um, and then they won Wimbledon, correct? Yeah, that was the, that was yeah. one that broke the streak. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So you know, it looked like they they were going to be like the new Bryant brothers, obviously not related, but both Frenchmen. Um, but then, you know, now now Murray and uh, Jamie Murray and Suarez have two slams this year, which is obviously the leader. Uh, so yeah, the race for number one is interesting, and the race for the last two London spots, you know, it's the same case with singles. It's basically coming down to Paris, two spots, four teams in contention. Um, there was actually a huge first round match today. Uh, Cotton and Piers versus Mirny and uh, uh, Huey. And they're actually seventh and eighth in the race to London and had to, had to play each other in the first round. That's crazy. Yeah. And Cotton and uh, Piers won. So they're pretty much in by virtue of their win today. And Mirny and Huey now have to sit back and hope uh, Roger and Takao have to lose before, I believe, the semifinals. Which is more likely than not, probably. Uh, before uh, semis. I mean, they'll likely lose before the semis yeah. based on their... Uh, Takao's been out with a foot injury for a couple of months. Yeah. Um, he played his first tournament you know, in like at least a month last week in Basel, and they lost in the semis, so... And they have to play Jack Sock in their first match in Paris, which yeah. uh, whoever Sock plays with, he's always Sock tough. Is, and Sock he's playing with Nicholas Monroe, who's a very solid doubles player. And so. Sock has played really well this fall. Yeah, um, yeah. he's won. One, we won, won we're, Shanghai with Isner. Won Shanghai with Isner, won Vienna with... Uh, Granollers. Granollers, good. yeah. yeah. And uh, he, <laughs> most <laughs> impressively most, of all... Most impressively. He made the Beijing final and brought... Bernard Tomic with him. That's Bernard Tomic, who's like one of the worst doubles players, the least accomplished doubles players out and there. Least, least interested, probably. Yeah, to get to, for Sock to to yeah. drag him to the final. That's, I didn't watch that, it. Maybe maybe Tomic was great. I don't know, but that's a, that's, that's a seat. That's Sock's second best doubles accomplishment ever, behind winning Wimbledon, probably. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, th- I think Mirny and um, Huey will backdoor their way in. I think I think Sock and uh, Monroe will beat Takao and Roger and then. Benito and Roger Vaslin can uh, they can still make it if they win the title, but obviously that's unlikely. Last thing, we're in the indoor season, which is longer for ATP than WTA. WTA barely has any indoor season at all. Um, it's certainly not one that all players play outside of the tour finals. But ATP has a decently, you know, few weeks one, and there's consistently indoor events after US Open, starting in you know uh, Mets and whatever else, and uh, now the Vienna and Basel being two five hundreds on offer, and then now the uh, Bercy. This week and indoor tennis always used to be associated with being really fast, and this has not been the case this week at all. I think the Vienna court was really slow. Uh, the Sing- uh, women's too. I mean, the Singapore court was very slow, and I know, at least for me, it was just not as fun to watch slow hard courts a lot, especially for WTA. There's less power, just rallies go on, and more things are determined by errors. And you see, I mean, there can be good rallies come out of it, but overall, I like seeing winners more than not, and especially right. on AT on WTA. You never get a situation where there's like a Karlovich or anything right, right. Who's, who's sort of ruining that. But just wondering what you think of the overall slowing down of the tour. And we don't get usually that much hard data on this, but there yeah. was released by the ATP during the Shanghai broadcast this graphic, yeah. uh, which we'll include in the episode description, uh, or at least tweet out. The court pace index for the for the courts of the Masters events. And we don't, it's sort of how they measure it. It doesn't have to do, we should say, with like atmospheric conditions, heat and altitude. Right. And thin air like in the desert of India Wells can make a difference in this. But it shows in this sort of five color, you know, national security threat level-esque <laughs> red to blue graphic here. Uh, there are four tournaments that count as slow, which are the, unsurprising the three court tournaments. And then very surprisingly, the one indoor Masters in yeah. paris Bercy is just barely in the slow category. And then Indian Wells, Miami, and London all count as medium slow. 
and then just barely above that on the slow end of medium are Toronto and Cincinnati. And then Shanghai is the only Masters event that counts as medium fast. Yeah. And Z- so and zero, zero, zero of the zero, ten are zero fast. are actually fast. Yeah. And one and one is medium fast. Right. So I mean, I'm somebody who I've said a bunch of times, I did not enjoy men's tennis that much in the nineties mm-hmm. when it was just Ace Fests and, you know, Sampras and Ivanisevich and Krychek and you know, Todd Martin or whatever, and a lot of serve and volley, a lot of very short points. Yeah. I think, especially when you go back and watch that, it's just sort of, I think, you know, the sort of Federer, Hewitt, Hewitt might be the one who reigned in it more. Yeah. And being the first, like, real baseliner. Agassi had been a baseliner, too, but hadn't, didn't seem to usher in a trend the way that Hewitt and Federer, although early Federer was more of a serve and volley guy. Yeah. Um, anyway, is this a problem, especially on the indoor events, for there for their not to be a representation of a fast court tennis? I think, I mean, I, I think it is, uh, you know, ideally I would like, you know, I would like there to be lots of fluctuation. You know, I'm fine with really slow courts, but I think those should be balanced out with, you know, really fast courts every once in a while. I mean, I think definitely at least two of the Masters series ideally would be in the fast category. At least one fast one, right? Just yeah. like, oh, yeah, ideally at you least. should have at least one fast yeah. one. I mean, either Cincinnati or Toronto should be fast. At least medium and then, fast. Yeah, at least medium fast. And then at least one of Shanghai or Paris should be fast. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, these things change a lot, and there's very rarely any transparency, and a lot of time players... And it's, I would like to see this, this data get published more often and just, like, on the score sheets and on the website. Like, there's no reason why not to publish it because they have it for every tournament. Right. They, they measure it. I um, think – I mean, one of the problems, I feel like the results on men's tennis are just too monotonous. Like, you're kind of getting – Exactly. You're kind of getting the same results every week. That's why Djokovic can where, be Djokovic. Yeah. Because he plays his one style. Yeah. Which is perfectly – you know, perfectly works for the conditions he's in right now. He's, yeah. he's a player – and Murray, too. There are players who are made by this era. And even Nadal. I think, like, Nadal – uh, grass slowed down a lot too. It's hard to imagine Nadal having won Wimbledon honestly in the nineties. I don't know if his style would have held up yeah. that way. Yeah. But he won two Wimbledons, and sent, he's, lately he's fallen off really hard on grass. But uh, I think he was able to adjust and didn't start playing what we think of as traditional real grass court tennis at any point. Um, but yeah, numbers the Bear, the Bear City one is one that surprises me most, being down in the slow category. Right. Yeah. And I have an anecdote from Marty Fish. Some Americans don't regularly play. Uh, uh, off, will have often more often than they should skip Bear C. Yeah. Uh, at least in Roddick used to skip it some, and Fish definitely didn't. Blake did, I think, some too, even when they were top 20 players, and they shouldn't be probably. Um, and Fish had skipped it one year, but had heard it was really fast, and he loved fast courts. He was like, Oh, mm-hmm. I hear pa- Paris is fast. And then he went to travel and go there the next year, and he got there, and he said it was the slowest tournament he ever played. And there's, yeah. just, there's just been, like, that much variation and, like, unpredictability in the schedule. And I, I don't know. I just think, first of all, there should be more transparency. Yeah. Like, U.S. Open, I know, it's very um, hush-hush. People, I've tried to ask about them changing their courts and making them slower over the years, and they, like, won't release any data on that. They're like, it's our secret formula. We won't say. Yeah. Which I just think is, in the name of transparency, that makes such a clear... And there are these actual quantifiable numbers. They right. Measurements they do where they drop a ball, and they sort of... They do speed tests. They yeah. have mechan- uh, little devices. And as you it. said, it's surprising that Cincinnati yeah. is so much slower than, like, Shanghai. That's the like, one that's... Yeah. yeah. Cincinnati is not that fast. Like, granted, Cincinnati is hot and humid. Right. So, so the conditions play right. faster And same there. for Madrid. Like, Madrid's one of the slowest, Madrid but it'll play faster slowest, because yeah. of the altitude. Yeah. And Indian Wells, as a weird conditions, that don't always make for great tennis with the really slow court and the yeah. ball flying a lot. But yeah, I feel yeah. like if we just had more of a fluctuation or more of a, you know, more, more, it, but counterpoint, more super slow and more super fast so that... But counterpoint, know, super fast would lead to a lot more like Karlovich and yeah, but, Ronich but, success, which pe- I, feel like, but, I feel like people really bemoan when those right. guys are doing well. 
Right, but they, I, I feel like that would be fine at one tournament. I mean, we don't we don't need super fast at two or three master series, but I think we should get super fast at at least one. And what do you what do you think about my? I have this theory that I've made up, which is a hybrid idea, uh, which is maybe ridiculous. I would like to see them do a compromise, a sort of. It would be I think totally unfair, and I don't want to discriminate against the styles of. I think it's unfair to make competitive disadvantages for those guys. But hear me out. Uh, make a court that was slower in the service box and faster. Oh, wow. After the service line. And even if you wanted to do it in sort of like a gradual ombre thing, then make oh, it like wow. generally, like you could do this if you wanted to make like sort of a striped or faded court that rewarded power being hit deep, but slowed down serves. Right. And so if you actually, would... and it actually, and if you had it slow in the service box too, it would make it, um, uh, drop shots would be rewarded also. Wow. So I don't know. I think so, it's yeah, kind of, get... it's, it's gimmicky. But I think that it could actually lead to pretty good. Play. You would get so, more rallies, so long and as the ma- was... and the rallies would be more entertaining. Basically, yeah, there'd be fewer aces. And you, you, were, the thing that I don't like about slow courts is they don't always reward aggression. Like especially Singapore, like you'd see one of the women hit a really good shot, and like it would just get neutralized so quickly. Yeah, and it just rewards uh, patience in a way that I'm not always a fan of. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I that and the question is if it would be traction would be an issue if like the players would step from one to the other and slip. I, I think yeah. you could make it. I don't think it'd be that extreme. I think the difference in grit would not be that noticeable. Like yeah. on your feet, I would think. I don't know. You I test think, it I think out. It's, the, test it out in the IPTL or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, I mean, they had. I think one of the most underrated tennis moments of all time was the Battle of the Surfaces. Uh, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, battle remind, of the reminds me of the clay grass. Yeah, so Battle of the Surfaces for those of you who don't remember was this exhibition match played in Mallorca. Um, did they only fed- play one? Only did one. Okay. It right. was a Federer and Nadal match on a specially built court where half the court, one side of the net was grass and one side was clay. And it was back before Nadal had made his breakthrough at Wimbledon, and it was really considered like one yeah, owns clay, one clay owns grass, specialist. right? Yeah. And so, and they both took it. The, the great thing about that match is they both really wanted to win it. It was like a, it was the most competitive EXO I've ever seen, and they would like switch shoes when they were doing changeovers right. to like get yeah. the right. It was really cool. I. I'm all for it. It was never a doubt, though, that that was going three sets. No. And it was a third set tie break, I think. Yeah, I think it was. was. But it was like, I think, I don't think it was, maybe, maybe Exos, they split sets intentionally, but I feel like the end of that match was very competitive. Yeah. They both really wanted to, like, they really did see this as, like, being the sort of made up, like, tiebreaker between the two of them, and they both really wanted to win. A neutral surface. I'm pretty sure Nadal won it, but I don't remember for sure. Yeah, I think Nadal won it in a third set break. Yeah, but it was a good match. I do, I do like that idea. I think they actually were thinking of bringing it back to this exhibition that got canceled. Sharapova and Muguruza, I think, might have they might have uh, pitched yeah. a battle of services from Madrid uh, in December, and I think that Muguruza pulled out, I believe. But yeah, I would like to see that come back. Maybe not as, even as a regular tournament. You know, why the hell not? Yeah, I like your idea though, of the uh, of, that the, works, of, the, right? of the service box and the and the and the. I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, like, I know that it would be absolutely meaning to hold back guys like Ronich. Yeah, and be very transparently doing that. Yeah, and is that fair? No, but so what. The fans would enjoy it. Yeah. And and also, I mean, like, sports have made, like, NHL comes to mind. Like, they made the, the trapezoid rule for goalies, uh, where the goalies can't, for those of you don't know anything about hockey, goalies, like, can't play the puck uh, behind the net except for in a certain designated area. And the reason they did that was to keep, to give an advantage to offenses yeah. and to, you know, stop things from, just create more action. And it was made in large part due to the success that Brodeur, Martin Brodeur, had in doing this because he's an amazing stick handler for a goalie yeah and it was all just meant to screw him up (laughs) and that's not fair to him but it was good for the sport yeah if somebody's doing from the sport that you think hurts the quality of your product it's uh, like augusta tiger proofing for yeah (laughs) building building more rough yeah (laughs) 
No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so gimmicky, though, it would be, I think it would be pretty cool. And I'm, I'm all, mostly all for experimentation and gimmicks, so long as it doesn't really fundamentally change the, the makeup of a sport, i.e., like, singles or set tie breaks. I don't right. think need, uh, singles at super tie super breaks. breaks yeah. I don't think that needs to happen. That's a bridge too far. But in-game, you know, trying to fine-tune things, why the hell not? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And with that, thank you for uh, tuning in, fine-tuning to this episode of No Challenge Running. Thank you very much, Ricky. For joining us here. Yep, thanks for having me. I'll be in. Uh, I'll be in London in two weeks. So you guys should follow along, Ricky. Yeah, yep. uh, Ricky will be writing for TennisBalls. Yeah. who's one of our executive producers of the show. So we appreciate that. And also follow Ricky along at Diamondator D I M O N A T O R on Twitter. Quality stuff there. As for always, uh, if you want to follow along with us on NCR when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash NCR Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Send us emails for questions with upcoming shows. We'll do more questions and mailbag stuff as we get into the off season for sure. No challenge remaining at gmail.com is our address there. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and anywhere else and leave us reviews there. We like that. Uh, executive producers of No Challenge Remaining are Pancho Resendants of TennisBalls.com and Tal Woolley from Ricky and I. So long. We'll see you whatever marathons, metaphorical or actual you guys are running in the rest of life. <laughs> we hope that you come across the finish line flying colors behind or ahead of Carolina Wozniacki. Either way. And uh, we'll see you guys soon. Later. Yep, later. I still hear your voice when you sleep next to me. I still feel your touch in my dreams.